Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we ask about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. This is our year in review podcast, and we're going to look at some things that happened this year and talk about what these events mean for American politics and especially American institutions, the, the thing that we're the most obsessed with. After this, we'll be taking a little break until the new year, so it, you can catch up on any politics and questions episodes that you may have missed, work your way through the feed, revisit your favorites, your least favorites, leave us a rating or some comments. Um, during that break, and we'll see everyone in uh, 2023. I'm Julia Azari. I am a political science professor at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner. I'm a political science lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University and a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So we're going to pick... Some of the most important events of the year, uh, growing, we're going to go in chronological order, which has a logic to it. And these are really events that I chose arbitrarily um, that jumped out at me as the most significant. Um, we'll, we'll start with talking about the Uvalde shooting in Texas back in May. Uh, we'll talk about the January 6th hearings, which obviously went on for several months. Um, then the Dobbs decision in June, and then close up with the topic that's been on our minds lately, the 2022 midterms. And we want to talk about how do these events shape the others? How are they shaped by each other? How did they change our institutions or reflect how well our institutions are functioning and serving us or or not? Um, This is obviously not an exhaustive list. You know, I had originally wanted to talk a little bit about the war in Ukraine that's been hugely significant, um, maybe is not a story best told um, primarily through the lens of American institutions and domestic concerns. Undoubtedly, I think Lee and James will probably have some ideas for what I forgot. And I have every confidence that the two of them can can weave whatever they wanted to talk about into the questions I'm going to ask them. But it's, you know, it's been a really eventful and complicated year and we just wanted to to really revisit some of the most important events. So I'm going to start with the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. This was, to me, you know, one of the, the saddest and most chilling events of the year, coming just 10 days after a shooting that was targeting African Americans in Buffalo, New York. And I think that this, the kind of journalistic end of this story, the kind of investigative end, with new revelations about what happened in Uvalde that day in May has really been the main story in the news. I like to also think about the institutional implications. And one thing that this did was it reopened discussions about the role of police and it kind of questions about why the police in Uvalde were not willing or able or whatever happened, they they didn't prevent this from happening. They didn't keep those kids and teachers safe in that school that day. That also did actually lead to some bipartisan gun safety legislation being passed. And this legislation was, you know, very limited in its scope. And it was able, you know, as a result of that, to, to bring together a somewhat bipartisan coalition. And also, I think it's notable that this legislation was opposed by the NRA, and it passed anyway. And so I think that does open up some questions about what our institutions can do. Um, it opens up some questions about whether, in fact, you know, Congress can work, um, or, you know, whether Congress can work despite 
those institutional arrangements, whether, you know, whatever works in American politics is really a matter of circumventing the filibuster, the influence of the NRA, all of these other kinds of features that are typically associated with dissatisfaction. James, you want to get us started weighing in on this also? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to start off by saying that it's, it is a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy, these, these school shootings. And, it's, and I think equally tragic is to, to see the aftermath, the follow-on, what happens next. And on one hand, you're right. You mentioned the Senate passed a gun safety bill, a gun control bill. I don't know what the correct nomenclature is these days in late June. But you know, I look at it in a slightly different way. This bill doesn't do pretty much anything, right? I mean, it, it, I don't want to minimize the significance, but this isn't a major piece of legislation. If we were going to put this in the in the civil rights language, this would be the Civil Rights Act of 1957. I imagine most of our listeners haven't heard of the Civil Rights Act of 1957, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the big bill, the marquee landmark piece of legislation that everybody has heard about that actually accomplished a lot, did a lot. And it was the result of a big fight on the Senate floor, a long, drawn-out fight, the longest filibuster in the Senate's history. And on the outside, you had people like Dr. King and the civil rights movement protesting, protesting in Birmingham. You had civil disobedience. You had a lot of effort. And it took time. It took time for that to all coalesce and change people's minds and create this piece of landmark legislation in 1964. And I think that the the gun control debate, the gun safety debate, and the school shootings are very tragic because you have these shootings. They seem to happen with an increasing regularity. And then the, the aftermath is almost, you can script it. A lot of people express outrage in both parties. Both parties kind of advance certain policies. People generally will say the Republicans aren't interested in, in doing something serious and the Democrats are. They schedule a vote. They can't get 60 in the Senate. And then they all throw up their hands and they go back home. And then people on the outside have a filibuster. I mean, they have a big protest that maybe, but then after a week or two, they lose interest. And they end up going for the lowest common denominator. But in reality, I think this does encapsulate, and I apologize for going on here, but I think it does encapsulate a lot of what's wrong with our politics today. Going back to Dr. King, he tells us, you know, progress doesn't roll in on the wheels of inevitability. You have to make it happen. You have to debate. You have to hang out on the Senate floor. You have to go outside and protest. And in Bob Dylan's words, you know, you have to rattle their windows and you know, and make them understand that the times are changing. And you saw that in the 60s. You saw that in the 70s, but you don't see that now. And so now we have a tragic shooting. And if it takes a tragic shooting like Uvalde to get something like the gun control bill that the Senate passed in, the, in June, I'm not, I don't think that's, that is not a good trade in my book. You know, funding for red flag laws, uh, you know, for the states, giving the states more money to implement that, saying if you've been convicted of domestic abuse, we're going to give a little bit more uh, regulations on, on your gun rights here, uh, you know, increasing background checks for people under 21 in certain circumstances. Like that's not, that doesn't rise to the level. And I think the reason why, and I think it also explains a lot of what else happened this year, is because the senators aren't interested in just trying day in and day out to actually do something. And you have to have that before you can have somebody stop you. And then you have to have that before you can have a compromise. And I don't know if that's making a lot of sense, but to me, it seems that we're not going to get, regardless of what you think uh, progress is, 2022 is going to wrap up to be a bit of an eh, because it's, it seems like we've forgotten how to do politics. 
I think that's a, actually a really interesting analogy, the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Um, Lee, you want to weigh in? Yeah, so I, I've been following this gun politics stuff for a long time. I remember Sandy Hook, everybody said, well, this is the thing that's going to get Congress to pass something. There was the Manchin-Toomey bill. Uh, in that case, the NRA, I think, was quite powerful. And the story that I told everybody when they wanted to know why we didn't have gun reform was that you had organized activity on one side, the, the, the gun side, and you really didn't have anything on the other side. So for members of Congress, there was a big threat of crossing the gun lobby, but also you had some Democrats from gun-owning states. Uh, back then, you had a Democrat from Alaska, North Dakota, uh, a few other states who you know, had, had constituencies where that NRA endorsement mattered. Now, when I think about the politics of guns, there's a tremendous gun control lobby on the side of making it harder to get guns. And many blue states have made it harder to get guns. Red states have made it easier to get guns. And like many issues in our politics, it's it's just extremely dug in. So yes, maybe you can do something very superficial and minor, as James said. But everything is about, well, it's got to be a victory for our side. Uh, and and maybe, maybe, James, you're right that this is the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which was uh, maybe a precursor. I hope you're right. But to me right now, it's just yet another issue that is pushed into the maw of polarization in which you start having crazy explanations for, for what happened that are just so just about winning a particular fight in a particular moment without really engaging in, in the substance of, of the, the, the larger challenges of our politics. Yeah, that all makes sense, too. I, the one thing I want to say before we move into the next topic is that the other piece of this story is not just a Congress story, and it's not even just a social movement story. I think that's really a, a critical piece of this, but it's also a Supreme Court story. And it's also a story of the way that the court and kind of conservative legal movements and and pro-gun movements or anti-gun control movements have all sort of shaped the understanding of the Second Amendment. And I think, you know, there's there's a distinct possibility that we'll see, I think, more activity from the Supreme Court on this issue. And it's yet, it's yet another area. It joins um, abortion, which we'll talk about later, and campaign finance and a number of other issues where we are kind of seeing the Supreme Court take a stance that is not entirely reflective of um, of public opinion. And that's not necessarily what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. But in the case where the Supreme Court is really taking an active role in policy, that starts to, I think, be a really unsustainable kind of situation. And Julia, real quick, real quick, like 20 seconds, because I, I want to continue the civil rights thread here. Yeah, I also think that this also is a great uh, illustration of how much our politics has changed in 2022. Dr. King in 1968 in his, Memphis, in his mountaintop address to the Memphis sanitation workers, he's not talking about the Supreme Court, admittedly. He's talking about a district court judge. But he's saying, I'm not going to let an injunction stop me. The last time I checked, the last time I looked at the 
Constitution and the First Amendment. This is what I took away from it. And I think you don't see that in the social movements today or in the Democratic Party or in the Republican Party. It's the Supreme Court passed it down from on high. And there we are. We have to just live with it. Yeah, that's I think that's a good point. I think we're going to return to a lot of these themes when we talk about Dobbs. But I want to I want to keep going in chronological order, even though maybe that maybe that's not going to make sense in the end. But I, I, I do want to flip over to talking about um, as we review the year, the January 6th hearings, which, you know, unlike, I think, some of these other topics where we're thinking of these historical analogs and we can kind of think about the, the shape and structure of social movements and their relationship to legislation and the relationship between those two things and jurisprudence, we have a situation with these January 6th hearings where I think these are really in a lot of ways, a unique product of the 21st century and of the, the Trump era. There are obviously parallels to the you know televised Watergate hearings, um, or maybe even to some of the, the Bill Clinton stuff. But, you know, I think this was really distinct. It was distinctly mediated and theatrical. It was distinctly partisan in like a particular way, right? Because it wasn't just a kind of straight up partisan exercise like the Clinton impeachment or this sort of mid, mid-century mid partisan politics of, of Watergate. Uh, instead, it was this kind of public demonstration of the cleaving off of Republicans like Liz Cheney away from the rest of the party with a kind of added bonus in the middle of, of these hearings of Cheney losing her primary. Um, so it's obviously huge, huge significance for the Republican Party. We have a kind of set of questions about the Trump era and the ro- the role. I mean, for me, this is a presidential scholar. I haven't even really begun to digest it, um, to think about what the presidency means. And I so now we've hit the point in the podcast where I am going to talk up something I wrote months ago, because that's just a really important box we have to check off in every podcast. Over the summer... Was um, invited to to write a blog post, um, and I, I wrote this piece, uh, the the Georgetown Governmental Affairs Institute blog about actually about Biden, but Trump the Trump Trump was the setup, and it was specifically the Cassidy Hutchinson portion of the hearings where this um, close aide in the White House came in um, to talk about things that she had seen, and it really drove home this idea that Trump had not seen the presidency as this kind of office for all the people. And when he was talking about taking away the the metal detectors on January 6th and saying, well, the people there are not, they're not here to hurt me. That really, to me, drove home the sort of nagging suspicion, right? That it's like confirming all the things that a lot of people already knew about the Trump presidency. And to me, that's a really, that's a really profound shift in the presidency. And I, the piece that I wrote was sort of about the deficit um, in this idea of, of the president being the kind of president for all of the people that Biden had to make up. For To me, it was, it really solidified my understanding of how Trump and Trump's distinct orientation toward himself and his family and his political side, as opposed to the Constitution and the people, that, you know, what what that larger, longer-term impact was on the office of the presidency. So that's my angle. There's obviously infinite number of things we could say about these hearings. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Lee. Yeah, the, the thing that strikes me about the January 6th hearings is just how 
simultaneously significant they were for the historical record, as well as just the fact that there was this attack on the Capitol, and how few minds were changed. I mean, it was clear that the folks who were leading the those hearings were very deliberate about trying to reach uh, the maybe you call them the the sort of moderate Republicans who were not fully in the Trump camp. But the approval rating of Trump during the, these hearings really didn't budge at all. Uh, and in some ways, many Republicans throughout the country wound up digging in even more in defending or excusing what happened on January 6th as the result of these hearings that they felt like they, they had to downplay what happened as Democrats tried to raise the salience of it. And you know, like the Uvalde shooting, we have these incredibly significant events in which public opinion is not moving at all, in which both parties are incredibly dug in on how they see events and what they see as the causes and problems of those events. So these significant developments just get filtered into the same maw of partisan polarization. It's it's really remarkable when you stop and think about it, although we come to take it for granted. Yeah, and I think that I agree, but I want to kind of challenge that a little bit, which is nothing new. I mean, I think on one hand, if we look at the January 6th hearings, I think all uh, students of Congress, institutionalists should applaud whether they support Democrats, Republicans, or anybody in between, because here we have an instance ostensibly at the surface of Congress flexing its muscles, of trying to investigate, of using its oversight powers, et cetera, in a very high profile way, in primetime hearings, that sort of thing. We haven't seen this in a while. And maybe we have to go back to the the case to try to intervene in uh, Iraq, for instance, maybe, or even earlier, maybe Clinton in the impeachment hearings. But we haven't seen this kind of thing in a while. But I also agree with you, Julia, that this wasn't exactly the most serious effort. And it, look, I don't mind if something is partisan. That, that isn't a dis, uh, it doesn't disqualify it from good institutional action in my book. After all, ambition, counteracting ambition, presumably, uh, would, 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 would require partisans trying to check each other and push back against each other, whether they be in the Congress or whether they be in the White House. What's interesting to me is the fact that the Democrats, when they controlled the House after 2018, did not do any of this. There was a longstanding concern about uh, President Trump and Democrats when they're in a position to use their oversight power, to flex their muscles, to use the tools like the power of the purse, which James Madison tells us in Federalist 58 is the most awesome power, paraphrasing, of course, that you can give a people's elected representatives to kind of preserve their freedoms. Democrats were like in no different than Republicans, incidentally, uninterested in kind of going down that road. And which is interesting to me because it seems to me that we are polarized when it's convenient and when it's easy. And I think that's a major thing. And I'm going to return to that, I think, when we get to Dobbs. But the other thing I want to touch on is Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney. There's a lot of people holding up Liz Cheney and how she made this reluctant but principled break based on January 6th. And I think that, and also with regard to polarization, Liz Cheney illustrates the Republican Party isn't as unified as we think. Liz Cheney broke with her party well before January 6th, 
precisely because she didn't like the direction in which it was going. She was the conference chair of the party in the House. And as we know, House leaders are generally team players. They have to kind of, they march in lockstep. And she broke with them over and supported a Democratic uh, bill on anti-hate crime resolution. She called on Steve King to resign over policy uh, comments he made with regard to immigration policy. She supported a primary challenger to Thomas Massey. And while she was conference chair, donated money to his primary challenger's account. Right? She opposed Trump's foreign policy, which is one of these areas where Trump may, from a libertarian perspective, I think, have a little bit more of a kind of a success than in other areas of his presidency. She called on Trump's decision to get out of the Middle East a catastrophic mistake. She criticized the Republicans' pandemic policy. There should be no surprise that Liz Cheney ended up where she was in January 6th. If, you, if people would just look at what she did and how she kind of had this ongoing struggle with her own party, and incidentally, as a party leader, and she was unwilling to accept the direction in which her party was headed. And as we all know, parties change. They change over time. They go in different directions. And here we have a high-profile Republican disagreeing, irrespective of Trump, of the direction in which that party is headed, and therefore deciding to go in a different direction. Now, we, of course, try to fit that in our polarized lens and say, it was a principled stand against Trump and all these other people aren't doing it because they're enthralled to Trump, when in reality, I think there's some deep-seated policy disagreements there. Yeah, this is interesting. And um, I mean, I think we'll probably have a chance to revisit all of this um, in the coming year as we see what's what's going to go down. Obviously, the House is going to change control and that'll make a big difference. I do think, you know, I it's clear that public opinion didn't change very much after these hearings. But I do think that there's something to be said for the fact that Trump became a kind of to preview our, our final topic of the day. Um, the, the midterms, Trump became the sort of central figure for the midterms. And you never want your president uh, to be the central figure in the midterms, no matter what party you are, or apparently no matter whether that person is still president or not. I think that did, you know, maybe matter at the margin with the many competitive races. And clearly, you know, as we'll get to in a moment, Trump, you know, hasn't come out of the midterms, I think, politically stronger than he, he went into them. And I think that the hearings did have some um, some element of that. But I want to move on and talk about the, the Dobbs decision. This was such an eventful year. Wow. Um, so uh, the, the Dobbs decision overturning, overruling Roe v. Wade in June of 2022. And so I'm going to start this with a little bit of a, a provocation. Some commentators after this to, you know, much, <laughs> much consternation had said that maybe this will help depolarize the issue by letting states decide. And that really, you know, that was a really unpopular opinion on, you know, left leaning Twitter, that this would somehow depolarize the issue. And I don't think that, that what they said happened. I don't think it depolarized it by bringing into the states, similarly to, to gun policy, similarly to voting rights. Um, what we have seen instead is that the states, you know, themselves have sort of polarized with blue states moving in one way and red states moving in another way. Um, I don't think that prophecy came true. But I do think that in a weird way, we may have seen a sort of corner turned on the question of abortion by actually revealing a fairly strong consensus in this country um, or maybe consensus is the wrong word, but a strong majority um, in favor of abortion rights with the, these, 
you know, abortion uh, referenda passing in, in very conservative states in addition to the state level activity in, in blue states and competitive states. I think that's, you know, that's sort of been the revelation is like, oh, we've thought of this as a really polarized issue and maybe it is at the elite level. But when you look at what people think and you put this issue into really concrete terms with people's lives, it turns out that in fact, Americans ag- agree on quite a lot, not on everything, but on, a, on some fairly significant principles. Um, and that those, those principles of having some rights and some access to abortion is, um, you know, garners 60 to 70% majorities in, in a lot of different contexts. Um, so that's my, that's my sort of take or my, my provocation on the significance of the Dobbs decision for politics. James? Yeah, I think uh, I like a lot of that. To me, the Dobbs decision really provides a window into our politics and provides one of these rare opportunities for us to see the contradictions in how we think about politics and the reality of that politics. And if we start just at this, the state level and we look at what happened in some places, it was very predictable in like Texas, Arkansas, other places around there. We see kind of very predictable things happen. But then one of the earliest major things at the state level that happened was this referendum in Kansas that seems to go the other way, which didn't align with what we would typically think. So I think it, that tells us that one size fits all explanations for, for all of the states. It, that isn't the case, is especially on something like abortion, which we would usually think, oh, this is a thing where we all know what people think. We know where people are going to fall. But it turns out we don't. And then if we take that kind of continued humility and we look at what happened in the Senate, for instance, in May 2022, right before May 2022, that's this year, so May, right before the decision was announced, if you'll recall, there was a leak uh, and the Alito decision was leaked. And the Senate reacts and they try to pass a bill to codify Roe in anticipation of this. And they fail 49-51. They fail to get cloture to overcome a filibuster, which takes 60 votes in the Senate if all 100 senators are, are voting. Cloture fails. Well, what happens next? It failed 49-51. Now, Democrats, they couldn't get the, the votes to do it. Well, what happens next? Nothing. How many times have Senate Democrats gone back to abortion and, and voted on it? How many times did they try to overcome closure? How many times did they use the other Senate rules like Rule 19, the two-speech rule and other things, to try to overcome the filibuster of this bill? None. Zero. How many times have you heard them talk about it since? Very little, if at all. And this is very stark when we, can, when we juxtapose it to uh, Miguel Estrada. Most of our listeners are like, who? You know, you talk to people these days, they're like, Miguel Estrada, who's that? And he's like, well, he was a Bush nominee, a George W. Bush nominee to serve on the D.C. Circuit, uh, the Court of Appeals in D.C. And Democrats opposed him. Republicans supported him. They didn't have 60 votes. Democrats kept blocking him, but Republicans kept at it. They forced seven, if I recall, seven cloture votes. They kept the Senate in around the clock. They came back to this over and over again for Miguel Estrada. Abortion? Pro-choice, the defining issue in many respects of our politics in the 21st century and in the 20th century, one that Democrats are presumably unified behind, nothing. One cloture vote and they couldn't be quicker to drop it. And what's interesting to me is that we think that we are polarized and we look at the Democratic Party and we say all these Democrats voted for it and they're 100% in lockstep. But I think 
that it might turn out that maybe they're not necessarily in 100% lockstep, that maybe there's some slight nuances, maybe they have different priorities, maybe they disagree on certain things. And yes, they may all vote a certain way, but if you keep at it and you get to a point where you may actually be able to deliver on something, they may change their votes. And that's not that crazy. After all, remember Republicans in the Obamacare Affordable Care Act bill? The second they were in a position to actually repeal it after swearing, tattooing it on their forehead, walking around, naming their kids repeal Obamacare for seven years, signing blood oaths that this is what they were going to do, making it no secret. The second they are in a position to do it, they fall apart. People who had voted to repeal now are like, whoa. So this is something that lawmakers do all the time. And it turns out that I think that you have a lot of disagreement. It may not be disagreement on policy. It may be disagreement on priorities. It may be disagreement on how it will play and the consequences, whatever it may be. But it turns out you have a lot more, I think, pro-choice Republicans, and you have a lot more pro-life Democrats than we otherwise thought. And I think that explains why Congress hasn't returned to this issue. After all, if everything that the political science literature tells us is correct, they should be going back to this time and time and time again, but they didn't. And the reason why, I think, is because they are they're not as polarized as we think they are. Lee, now I'm giving myself the last word on this topic. Ah, Dobbs. So it's a funny thing uh, about being for something that you don't think is ever really going to happen, uh, or which is to say that. Uh, Republicans were all for opposing Obamacare uh, until they actually had a chance to repeal it. Uh, they actually almost did it. But it's easy to be against things. And then you, you realize that, uh, oh, now, now we're going to be held accountable. Similarly, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, for a long time, it seemed like that was never going to happen. So, sure. But now... They actually succeeded in doing that, and suddenly it's not that popular. So uh, the, the the funny thing uh, about the 2022 election is that for the first time, abortion was an issue that helped Democrats because people always are more motivated by something that has been taken away from them, right? So for a lot of women, motivated by the loss of a right, uh, but when you have something, you sort of take it for granted. So there's a, a, a funny psychology in, in how this all plays out, uh, but also it's you know reflects kind of changing cultural values, generation shift. Uh, so I'm not sure. I think I think Republicans have have a loser on their hands now, and they clearly realize that. Uh, the question is whether this will lead Republicans to actually moderate their position on abortion. Uh, and it seemed like they were sort of trying to do that in, in the midterms. Uh, but now Democrats are going to, going to push this issue. It's a wedge issue for Democrats, which is something new and different in our politics. Okay, yeah. So I think we're all kind of weirdly on the same page about this, which is that there's, there's a increasingly sort of daylight in American politics between the symbolic implications of a policy and then what it actually means for people. Um, and that the Dobbs decision really revealed that and really revealed what, you know, I identified, I'm going to just 
go ahead and promote something else I wrote. I wrote um, a piece for a UK magazine called The Prospect back in in May, and I said there's kind of a, a collision course for Republicans between consolidating power on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, between the sort of embrace of, of post-policy politics and this kind of space between the symbolic politics that they've embraced and the the concrete implications there. I don't think that's unique to Republicans, but I do think that the two parties are, are distinct in their approach, both to the sort of symbolic politics kinds of questions and also in their approach to consolidating power. Democrats have been a bit more reluctant or less successful. That's a, another podcast. Um, and I think the Dobbs decision does kind of reveal that and does kind of re- reveal the implications of that. And I think it also sort of suggests, I'm, you know, I do want to try and pull out things that happened this year in this event, eventful political year and sometimes tragic political year that there were some things that were positive. And I see that one of the things that I'm seeing sort of like little sprouts of this in our politics, like little seedlings in our politics is of the, the merging of politics and policy of those two things coming together a little bit again where politics is no longer just sort of the symbolic or identity competition, but it's it's also um, really about concrete kinds of fights and that what people are experiencing or seeing or seeing other people experience translates into their votes, that it's not just one partisan thing after another, it's that people actually do care about things that can transcend their partisan identity, um, that there is some malleability and and some fluidity in our politics, something that you've written about a lot, Lee. So I think we're all kind of weirdly on the same page in our interpretation of this, um, about about that kind of symbolic versus concrete in in American politics. And as I said, I do see I see the ability of people to turn their response to something that happens into political action and into voting for who's going to represent them in office, voting in a policy initiative or referendum. I do see that, like, it sounds really basic, but I see that as a positive step away from some of the depths of dysfunction in American politics. Um, so having given myself the last word on that issue, um, I'm, I'm going to turn us to the 2022 midterm elections, which we've been talking about in our last couple episodes and which we've uh, I think undoubtedly thought a lot about as as uh, Washington D.C. Um, looks to experience some minor but potentially pretty consequential power shifts. So I'm going to kind of start with you, Lee, about what what should we think about the 2022 midterm elections? How did they reflect some of the dynamics we're talking about? And the the real question I want to ask everyone is is kind of like, what do you think we'll be saying about the 2022 midterms and 2032 about their ultimate impact on American politics? Ooh, 10 years from now, looking back. Well, the thing that strikes me over and over again about the 2022 midterms is that there are these incredible levels of frustration with the status quo, wrong track numbers, or super high, large share of Americans say they are independent, but so little changed. Not a single Senate incumbent lost, only one Senate seat flipped, one incumbent governor lost, only seven House members who were incumbents lost. So there's this remarkable stability to our politics, uh, kind of calcification, and even this sort of thermostatic feedback 
where the, the midterms break against the party in power, like that didn't happen. So the question is, is that are we in a new era in which everything is just stuck and things can't be stuck forever? I mean, to James's point, there are real disagreements within the parties, although I think he, I think James, you sometimes over overplay that uh, polarization is is real, but there's this sort of growing hunger for something different. And I hope that plays itself out in major electoral reform and that we move towards a proportional multi-party system that I think would better uh, manage the disagreement and and differences in our country rather than this uh, knife's edge balanced binary in which which all the frustration builds up and then gets channeled to the singular political opposition. But it really does strike me just how calcified our politics are. And maybe, maybe this is the height of calcification and some some dam is finally going to break. Certainly, it seems, seems like there are two things in op- fundamental opposition to each other in our politics, which is the stability of the status quo and the dissatisfaction with the status quo. So something can't hold, but it's continues to hold. So uh, how long will it last? I don't know. Interesting that this word calcification keeps coming up. I just taught a chapter from the bitter end, um, the John sides, Lynn Vavrick and Chris um, Totonovich. Um, am I saying that right? Book on uh, the 2020 election. And they, they use this phrase calcification a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm getting it from. Yeah, their 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 book, which is an important book that people should engage with i think i'm i'm slaughtering the the third uh, tosanovich tosanovich okay i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm slaughtering people's names james go for it yeah well i mean lee just mentioned the status quo and you have these opponents of the status quo and then he juxtaposed it to the stability of the status quo and what i find fascinating if we kind of channel our frank baumgartner uh ee schottschneider kind of view of the world here the status quo doesn't just persist. It persists because people want it to persist. And right now, when I look out, you have people who are for the status quo and you have people who are against the status quo. And typically, the status quo is going to be expected to prevail. After all, it prevailed the last big fight. So unless something dramatic happens differently, it's going to be expected to prevail in the future. What's so fascinating to me about the present moment in our politics is I can't find anybody for the status quo. There's no one that I can tell that this seems to be particularly happy with the status quo, that champions it, that somehow stands up and pushes back against the opponents of the status quo. And admittedly, yes, if everybody's pushing in different directions, then sure, then it, it may not necessarily change right away. But as Baumgartner tells us, you know, you got two sides in a debate and those sides are for and against the status quo. And if nobody is against the status quo, I mean, is for the status quo and everybody's against it in their own unique way, it still should change. I think the reason why it doesn't, and to come back to our kind of point here about elections, is because we don't do politics anymore. We don't do the things that Dr. King did. We don't do the things the civil rights movement did. We don't do the things the suffrage movement did. The Montgomery bus boycott happened from December 1955 to December 1956 point to any issue. And Black Lives Matter was probably the closest one that actually was a sustained issue. But if we look at all of the different things, and gun safety is a great example of these kind of, they're almost like flash in the pans. It's like, we want to do this, and then it goes away. Or the suffrage movement, 67 years. I think that's right. From Seneca Falls 
to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. We're talking three generations of people. People who started the fight weren't alive to see it end, right? Politics is hard. It's hard work. You got to get up every day. You got to roll up your sleeves and you got to go out there and you got to try to overcome the status quo. And you may not get there, as Dr. King tells us. He's not going to get there. So he's like, I may not see it, but I've seen the promised land. He sees how it's going to happen. Conservatives in the conservative movement in the 1950s and 60s felt the exact same way. People were upset in the 1960s. They all took to the streets. They all took to civil disobedience. They all took to challenging their establishments, taking over their parties. There was an amazing amount of energy out there. And it wasn't that we all agreed. In fact, in many respects, we deeply disagreed over what was happening in this country. But you could not miss it. You could not look out and not find it because it was smacking you in the face. Today, it is not like that. And to me, I think that speaks to the fact that we think that all we have to do, all we have to do is just pull that lever every two years, every four years. And if our side wins, then that's all it's going to matter. That's all it takes. And then we are off to the promised land. But that's not the way politics works. You don't get to the promised land simply by going into the voting booth and pulling the lever for a candidate. You actually have to hustle in between. And that's not just the American people. It's also their elected representatives in Congress. You actually have to engage in politics in between elections. And I think this election was, was, is a great example of how Trump backed candidates won in some places, they didn't in others. They were unexpected in some places, victories in others, they didn't. Democrats did well in places we thought and didn't think they would do well. And same with Republicans. And it turns out that politics is a lot more nuanced a lot more complicated and a lot more complex than we think. And it's hard to take this one size fits all explanation on a fabulously diverse country like America and then and, and make it actually work. And it doesn't work. And I think that's a big problem. And I think it's a big indictment of the academy. And I think it's a big indictment of the kind of professional class that follows these things and comments on them for a living. So in keeping with that, I think you all are thinking about the status quo wrong. I mean, I think this is, you know, in, in keeping with James's comments about the the professional class and commentary and academics, we tend to think about midterm elections, especially academics, we tend to think about them as a sort of strictly congressional event, and that, that the relationship with the status quo is about who holds the White House and who holds, you know, who which incumbents hold seats in Congress, which party holds Congress. But I don't know that that's how other people are thinking about the status quo. And this also speaks to James's comment about people doing politics, because my sense is that people did do politics in this election, and they just did it, it, different people did it than you would expect, given who controls the White House and Congress. That you didn't see a movement in response to Biden, but you did see movements in response to Dobbs. And you do see the, the continuation of some elements of the movement for Black Lives. And you do see elements of a movement for gun control. And those movements are all alive. And on the left, you have is fragmented. Um, but you do have these sort of social movements. And that's not to say that they don't exist on the right. You also do have them. And you also have them in a sort of fragmented way on the right. The Trump movement, the kind of movements, movements around socially conservative issues, all of those things, the media universe. So I think a lot of people are doing politics. They're just doing politics in a really fragmented way. And I think to speak to what I think was going on on the left um, in terms of how that played out, because I think that's a deeper puzzle, the way that Lee has framed the puzzle, which is you have a lot of people who are probably not super happy with the status quo, but nevertheless returned the status quo. 
And I think that's because if you think about the status quo more broadly, what you had instead was this sort of what was the literal status quo going into November 8th, 2022, was this sort of lurking threat of more movement away from abortion rights, of more movement away from the way we've understood how elections work, of more movement away from policy that might address economic inequality, all of these types of issues that have been associated with the left that have sometimes been in the 80s and 90s, a political liability for the left, but have become more popular over time. I think that that the sort of like, the like, hanging like, axe over everybody's head or whatever, this is not a good metaphor, um, is that is the status quo that people were reacting to was this sort of sense of foreboding and sense of threat. And if you think of the status quo that way, then the election results make some sense that you have these sorts of issues where people might say, well, I would like an alternative to the Democrats. I would like something more centrist. I would like something further left. I would like something just different. But the alternative they didn't want in a lot of these competitive races, at least, was the current Republican Party. And I think it's important that James also points out that there are, there are areas where that picture is complicated pretty significantly. And there are areas where Iowa, Florida, you know, very much a red wave. Um, I think that, again, goes back to James's point about doing politics. I think one of the things that you see, one of the explanations for the, the variation in how different formerly competitive states have trended comes down to to local party strength and organization and areas where the Democrats have fallen apart organizationally and the Republicans have been strong or vice versa. And that I think is, you know, that's sort of the complicated picture. So that's, that's my sense on 2022. And I want to sort of wrap this up by saying, being the only person I think to answer the question that I posed, um, this is, you know, I'm making me miss uh, teaching. <laughs> I'm going to ask a question and then I'm going to be the only person who answers it. But I think one possibility, I'm going to make a prediction and then I'm going to look like a dumbass in, in 10 years, is that um, this will be a turning point from the way that we've thought about midterm elections. I mean, a turning point away from this very 20th century idea that midterm elections are inevitably a disaster for the president's party because of this kind of malleability of politics. And also the, this idea that midterm elections are elections in general are sort of susceptible to being interpreted in one in one clear way. I think what we're seeing instead, and we saw this as well in 2020, is that you have a really wide range of expectations about what an election is going to look like based on a lot of partisanship, but other types of, of identities and positions. And same thing in 2022. I don't think you're going to get a clear narrative about what people expected or, or even really what happened. I think you're going to have a bunch of different kind of more fragmented narratives of the election. And I think that 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 may or may not matter, you know, in 2023 or 2024. But I think that that one thing that may happen is we'll look back in 2032 and see this set of midterms and the complex issues and events that, that led to them and led up to them as um, evidence of this kind of turning point away from 20th century politics and really into a new set of political questions and assumptions. So we want to thank you for spending 2022 with us here at Politics in Question. And we look forward to asking new questions and having new debates in the new year. 
Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.